Father God, we thank you that uh, we can gather in a worship service. It's something that your people have done even before Jesus came, but since Jesus and the inauguration of this thing called the church, God, Christians have been gathering together every Sabbath, every first day of the week to sing your praises, to remember who you are and what you've done, to study your word and, and by it be changed. And we would ask that you would work that way in us this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk for a little bit about purity, the subject of purity. Uh, our society has certain standards, certain laws designed, in fact, to guard purity. Uh, we have a whole department of the government, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and they are the watchdog for purity when it comes to drugs that we take or foods that we eat. But it might surprise you to know that uh, we're not as pure as we might like to think. For example, apple butter is considered pure by the FDA if it averages no more than four rodent hairs per 100 grams or five whole insects per 100 grams, uh, not counting mites or aphids, I might add. Uh, mushrooms, not, not, not making any of this up. This is FDA regulations. Mushrooms are pure until you have 20 or more maggots of any size in a 15 gram sample of the mushrooms. Okay, 14 grams, or I mean 15 grams. If, you, if you've only got 19 maggots, it's good. It's pure, okay? Coffee beans, since we fired up the uh, coffee bar this morning, coffee beans are pure until you have 10% or more of them infected with insects. Ours is only 9% infected. So <laughs> ours is pure. You can drink that all day long. Now, here's the point. All things being equal, we, we kind of prefer purity. But after all, we are only human, right? So perfection is hard to come by. And so we've learned to put up with actually a great deal of imperfection. Uh, this is true, not just with coffee or apple butter. It's true about our hearts. It's true about the words that we speak. It's true about the thoughts that we have as well, because we are broken creatures. The Bible says we are fallen, meaning uh, we have succumbed to sin. There's sin in us uh, because that is true. We are okay with certain amounts of impurity in our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and so. And frankly, this is true about our culture. Uh, this is true about media. It's true about our nation. It's true about us. It's true about our hearts, our souls. Every human being alive convinces him or herself that my little impurities don't really matter. Your impurities are greater than my impurities. My impurities don't matter as much as yours. My, my impurities, in fact, are not really that big a deal. But, but think about this with me. Add up all of my impurities, even though they're fewer than yours, and then add up all of your collective impurities as well. And what do we get? Well, we get the world, the tragic world in which we live. We get a world that does away with unwanted babies. We get a world where one tribe is always warring, always against another tribe somewhere. We get a world where nation wars against nation, always somewhere. Uh, we get a world where blue collar versus white collar, rich versus poor, left versus right, white versus black, uh, maskers versus unmaskers, and on and on and on 
and on that goes. Why? Well, it's because we live in an impure world to which we, all of us, contribute. It's a world laced with sin and the effects of sin, the brokenness that sin causes. In Exodus chapter 19, we come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there's this ragtag group of recently freed slaves, freed from Egypt, and uh, they're grumbling. They've been grumbling. They've grumbled multiple times, even though God is, as we saw last week, again and again and again and again, remarkably delivered them. Uh, they grumble uh, the moment that they encounter some kind of difficulty, challenge, what have you. And this ragtag group of recently freed slaves really has no or not much of an identity at this point. They, re they really don't, uh, nor do they have much of a of an in-depth appreciation of or knowledge of the God that has freed them and brought them and gotten them up out of Egypt. Uh, they are thoroughly shaped by the culture that they have been living in for 400 years. And that culture, of course, is the culture of Egypt. And they are ready to run back to Egypt, as I said, anytime they experience some kind of difficulty. And yet, here's the thing. God plans to make this group of recently freed slaves into a holy nation. He plans to make them into a kingdom of priests. He plans to redeem the world through this group of people and arrest sin and the curse. He's going to do all of these things through this grumbling, whining, complaining, little of faith people that are gathered right now at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, but first, God is going to have to re-educate them. God is going to have to reshape their thinking. He's going to have to remake them or transform them, if you will. He will have to get them to see that there is another way to live than the way they've been living for the past 400 years. A way to live without the, the grasping, the clutching, the bitterness, the hatred, the selfishness that they are used to. And that whole process begins right here in Exodus 19, which is, in fact, the Super Bowl event for the nation of Israel what takes place here at Mount Sinai. And so we read in Exodus 19, these words. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That's relationship language, covenantal language. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That's love language. That's what a husband says to a wife or a wife says to a husband. You are my treasured possession. More important to me than any other, in this case, nation or any other individual, right? Although the whole earth is mine, God says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, notice, this is important, that before God ever gave any law to the Israelites or any of the Ten Commandments or what have you, he reminds Israel of his loving concern for them. He says to them, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself so that we could have relationship. And of course, that goes back to Abraham, their ancestor. God entered into a covenant, you remember, with Abraham. Abraham. 
And that covenant is carried forward and now God is re-upping or renewing or reminding them of that covenant relationship to the have and it, it, that they have. What's so interesting in that passage we just read, there's three phrases that actually become phrases that get repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament. These are phrases that uh, demonstrate God's loving concern and phrases that the nation of Israel never forget. He says, for one thing, he says, you will be my treasured possession. Wow. This little upstart wannabe nation actually is God's treasured possession. They matter greatly to God. And God also says, secondly, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. In other words, you will relate personally to me. That's what priests do. And what is more, you won't just relate to me. You will actually represent me to other people. That's what priests do. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to me. And then thirdly, he says, you will be a holy nation. That's interesting. Not just a nation, but a holy nation. You will be a community, an entire community of people set apart for God. A community demonstrating God's love and God's truth and God's justice, God's forgiveness, God's character, God's holiness to all the peoples of the earth. That's who this ragtag group of freed slaves is going to become. And to begin this reshaping process, extensive preparations are needed to enable them to meet this God and to really start to get to know him. We read in Exodus 19, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. So that's an interesting thing. So you're going to meet this God, but you can't even meet him until some consecration, some preparation takes place. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they approach the mountain. Again, this is kind of interesting. God is introducing a new category into the minds and into the language and hopefully into the hearts of the Israelites. And it's this idea of holiness, separateness, sacredness. Uh, now, Moses uh, responds back to God in verse 23. He said, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai. God, you don't need to. They can't come up because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. That little phrase, set it apart is important for helping us know what holiness even means because the, the meaning of holiness has everything to do with this idea of, of being set apart, being reserved for a special use, uh, being, uh, having a sacred purpose about it, uh, not to be touched, not to be used for any common purpose. That's the idea behind this idea of holiness. Now in the Bible, many objects are said to be holy. You remember we met, uh, we, we encountered Moses when he was at the same mountain and he was shepherding some goats and some sheep and he saw a burning bush, remember that, in Exodus 3? And uh, he's curious and so he goes over to check out this burning bush and as he goes over there, God says to him, uh, do not come closer. He says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's sacred 
ground. It's ground set apart. It's not like other ground. Not right now, not at this moment. Uh, it's sacred ground. And here in Exodus 19.23, we're told that the entire mountain, all of Mount Sinai is holy. Uh, sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, clothing will be said to be sacred or holy, like priestly garments. Uh, food is said to be sacred or holy, depending on the, the purpose and use. Worship utensils were sacred and holy. Uh, the tabernacle itself is sacred and holy. There are all kinds of prescriptions given around how you move the tabernacle, how you set up the tabernacle, how you take down the tabernacle, who carries what and in what order. Lots of rules, lots of laws around that because the tabernacle is sacred. It's holy. Later on the temple, same kind of thing. Understand, nothing about these things, though, is holy in themselves. Nothing. Uh, it's, it's only God who is holy in himself. And so these objects become holy precisely because they are either in the presence of God or they are representing some truth, some aspect about God that God wants represented. Point being, God is what makes these objects holy. And only God can do that. Only God can set those things apart and make them holy. This was a, a fairly common idea in ancient cultures. Other religions talked about setting things apart. They had certain things, even utensils, that were used in pagan temples that were thought to be sacred and so. But, but there's a big difference between that idea and this idea that's being introduced to Israel. There's something quite unique and very important that happens with this whole set-apart idea in Israel's case. What happens is this. This idea of being sacred, being holy, being set apart gets connected to God's moral perfection. God's goodness, God's character, perfect character, if you will. So Israel was to understand that, that God's holiness and God's set apartness was not just, you know, declaring something holy because it participates in religious ritual. No, 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 no. When we talk about holiness, we're, we're connecting it to who God is and God's character. And therefore, holiness also has this moral component to it because of God's moral perfection, because God is the opposite of evil, because God is only good and only righteous. And this is a component piece to this idea of holiness that's actually quite unique to Israel, this idea of utter separation from sin and evil. Now, the problem, of course, is that the folks who are camped down around at the base of Mount Sinai, they are like you and me. They're not holy. <laughs> In fact, they, they're they're very broken. They, they are, in fact, greatly tainted, uh, quite impure, if you will. And uh, so since the fall, you know, that's a Bible term. You know, we look back to when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, decided to rebel against God, not obey God, do their own thing. And that's what we refer to as a fall, a fall into sin. Ever since the, the fall, we, all of us, are marked by a terrible aversion towards holiness, now, there's a tension, though, because that's not entirely true, what I just said. Because while on the one hand, we have this aversion towards holiness, but at the same time, we're quite drawn to it. This is why the, uh, the, the uh, barrier had to be placed at the foot of the mountain. Because the Israelites wanted to go up the mountain. God is up there. Let's go meet this God. I mean, what could be better? 
Uh, look how powerful he is, how great he is, how good he is. So they wanted to go up. But then at the same time, there's this aversion to God because of holiness. We're drawn to holiness. We hunger for holiness. Why? Because holiness is perfection. Holiness is perfect goodness. Holiness is perfect righteousness. Holiness means everything is working exactly the way it should be working. So yes, we're drawn to holiness. We hunger for it. But at the same time, if we're telling the whole story, we're also quite afraid of it. We long for personal holiness. We know we need the Lord who is holy, who is wonderful, who is good, who is great. And yet we fear at the same time. He will destroy us because we're not holy. Now, we, we come to a scene here that we're about to read that's where they're going to try to be describing something that's almost indescribable. Fallen human beings are about to meet the transcendent, holy, all-powerful God. And friends, this is a trip that every human being is going to make at some point. If not in this life, if, they're, if, if they don't uh, bow before God and recognize who he is and that he's holy, well, guess what? They will one day. So even if a person denies God, doesn't believe in God, that, that's fine. We meet a lot of people who are kind of in that boat and they sometimes want to debate and talk and think about these things. That's all great and good. But just know this, the Bible says that the day of judgment is coming. So that day is coming when everybody will have some version of an experience of standing before the transcendent, holy God. And um, that's what we're going to read here in, in just a second. The uh, ragtag group of recently freed slaves meeting this great and powerful God. Now, what I would encourage you to do as I read these words is just try to put yourself into this situation. Imagine that you are there in the presence of this God. What sights are you seeing? What, what sounds are you hearing? And, uh, and, and to the best of your ability, experience this, right? So here, here's what we read in Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, so they've been in process now for, for two days, they had two days of consecration. Here's the third day, God is showing up. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Lock that in with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Everyone in the camp trembled. Now that trumpet blast, that's not somebody on a horn. That's not a human being blowing a trumpet. This is a supernatural trumpet blast going on. I don't know, maybe an angel's playing it. I'm not sure. Or maybe God's just causing that sound to happen. And everybody is trembling. And uh, if we had been there... <laughs> we'd be trembling too. Absolutely. Uh, we continue reading. It says, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. They want to meet God, this holy God. They want to go up to him. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered, we are told, with smoke. This is not clouds. This is smoke. Because the Lord descended on it, on the mountain in fire. You got that pictured? Fire. Fire is coming down from heaven. And it's, it's baking the mountain in such a way that there's just billows of smoke. Uh, in fact, it's even described, it says the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. Picture a giant furnace, a giant stack, and the smoke is just coming out of that thing, you know, with a vengeance. That's the picture here. Only it's on this mountain. So the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Earthquake going on as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Now, what's that about? Well, um, 
The best thing that, that I can think of to perhaps picture this, do you, do you remember uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, one of the phenomenon that happened was that there was a loud sound of rushing wind. And it was so loud, in fact, that the people in Jerusalem actually uh, came looking to see what on earth is causing that. And that sound got so loud that, it, that everybody could hear it. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. And, and it's not unusual in scripture that when God shows up, there's loud trumpet blasts, there's loud uh, uh, noise, there's thunder, there can be lightning. Well, I, I picture this, this trumpet getting louder and louder, kind of like a train coming. As a kid in Indiana, there were train tracks not far from where we lived. And you could go down there and once in a while the train would come by and you would hear the train as it would get close to a, a road crossing, it would start, you know, sounding the horn. And the, the sound of the horn when it was far off was, it was still plenty loud, but it wasn't as loud as it was going to get. And as that train got closer and closer and they would sound that, that horn, it was just so cool. It, it would practically blast your eardrums by the time it got right up close. That's kind of like what's going on here. This trumpet blast, it's getting louder. It's getting louder until, wow, it's about all you can hear. And that, that's what's going on here. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment all these sights, all these sounds, smoke, the smell of smoke, fire, the visual effects of fire, earthquake, trumpet, louder and louder, thunder, lightning. This is what it's like for an unholy people to come into the presence of a holy God. And we know exactly how this affected the people. Uh, we read that when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled. Their knees are knocking. I mean, they're genuinely scared to death. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. You see, they understood something of the depth of their own sinfulness and of the depth of God's holiness. And they're not far from truth here. I mean, if they, if they just casually walk into the presence of God being who they are and he being who he is, they will surely die. They will surely die. And that's partly why they are so fearful. Um, and this is a constant theme in scripture. When people encounter the holy God, the first thing that happens is there's a sense in which they're drawn to him. Isaiah coming before a holy God. He's drawn to God. He's drawn into God's presence. And then he suddenly becomes aware of himself in light of this holy God. And woe is me. You know, I am a man of unclean lips, he says. Uh, this happened to Job. It happened to Moses. It happened to David. It happened to Isaiah. It happened to Peter. It happened to John in the book of Revelation. And, and now in our society, we, we read stories like this, and these are so foreign to us. Not many of us have had an encounter, anything even remotely like this, where we can be very casual even in how we think of God, how we approach God. Um, and probably not many of us actually ever sit and reflect on the holiness of of God. We've, we've not had this kind of experience, but, but if we had guaranteed, we would be tremblers too. We'd be right in the mix with these Israelites. Our response would be exactly the same. It wouldn't be oh, 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 No, we, we would be shaken at the knees and ducking for cover. Look at what Moses says in Exodus 20, 20. He says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. I don't know why. I mean, that's the kind of thing angels are always saying in scripture. I don't know why, you know, because you can't help but be afraid. But he says, God has come to test you. 
That's part of what's going on with this big scene here at Sinai. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, that's kind of the interesting paradox, if you will, of relating to this holy God. On the one hand, people say, Moses, you talk to us, not God. We don't want to die. He's really quite frightening. On the other hand, they want to go up the mountain and they would like to, to break through and see. And, and the, the, what their understanding is in these early encounters with God is God is not safe. Do you understand that? God is not safe. He's loving. He's gracious. He's good. He's kind, but he's also holy. And he's not to be taken casually. He's not safe. He's not a puppy kind, right? He's a holy, holy, holy God. And it's as if Moses with all of this is saying, whoever said he would be safe, he's not safe, right? He's coming to put fear in us so that we will begin to see our sin, the stuff in us that's very broken, the way God sees sin. You see, when God looks at our sin, God is holy and fully aware that every sin that you commit and I commit actually destroys us. We might think sin is fun. Uh, we, we might enjoy the sins that we enjoy. Well, good, good for you, good for me. Here's the reality. That sin is killing us. It's killing relationships. It's killing your relationship with God. It's killing relationships vertically one to another. It's helping contribute to the world in which we live, the broken world we inhabit. That's how God sees sin. Sin is awful. Sin is ugly. Nothing good whatsoever about sin. And so part of what God is doing here, he's putting his fear upon the Israelites so that they will see their sin the way God sees their sin. And they will want to repent of it. On this mountain, God speaks to Moses and he gives the law, uh, the, part of the laws, the Ten Commandments, but he gives the law uh, and those laws, understand, uh, right up to the day, this day, this present day, they've actually changed the world, the laws that God gave. And here, here's what I want to do. I'm going to put the Ten Commandments up on a screen. Uh, this is mostly to wake you up uh, and also just to kind of, you know, get, get us familiar with, at least to begin to get familiar with these Ten Words, Ten Commandments that God has given us. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand. And uh, we're going to read these together. We're going to just read them soberly, reverently, and reflect on the fact that these are the, the Ten Moral Commandments that God has given us. We're going to read them together out loud. Now in, in times past, churches would do this every Sunday and they would do this because they wanted people to remember the law of God and be guided by the law of God and have the fear of God put into them so that you would view your sin the way God views your sin. And I would view my sin the way God views my sin. So here we go. We're just going to read these uh, out together. Law one, let's read together. You shall have no other gods before me. Law two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Law three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Law four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Law five, honor your father and your mother. Law six, you shall not murder. Law seven, you shall not commit adultery. Law eight, you shall not steal. Law nine, you shall not bear false witness. Law 10, you shall not covet. You can be seated. 
Those 10 words, those commandments were given to Israel and understand when they received them, they became the prize possession of this group of people that were in process being formed. And we're gonna unpack the 10 commandments in the weeks to come. So I don't need to do that. I'm not going to start doing that this morning. What I wanna do in the time that we have remaining is, I've been a pastor long enough to know that the, the whole idea of the Old Testament law as it relates now to our New Testament faith can be very confusing to some people. You know, what's the point of all those regulations and all that law? Yes, there's the Ten Commandments. They seem okay. They're not bad ideas. But what about all the other stuff? And so the law in general can be somewhat of a conundrum for Christians if you don't understand our relationship to the law. So I want to ask some questions, and I'll try to answer them, and um, we'll see if this is helpful. Um, here's the first question. Were people living in Old Testament times... Were they saved? Were they, did they enter into relationship with God through a keeping of the law? Was that the basis of their relationship with God? And we want to be real clear on this. You know, there are over 613 laws Jewish rabbis have identified in the Old Testament. And that, of course, includes the Ten Commandments. Uh, but understand the laws, all of those laws, they were never given so that God's people uh, could have a relationship with God. That actually gets the whole thing exactly backwards. That's never how God has related to human beings. Remember, the law was given to Israel after God had already established a covenant relationship with them. After God had already been gracious to them. In Exodus 20, verse 2, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God starts before he gives any commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's a covenant statement. That's a statement of relationship. Uh, and here we need maybe a little information about ancient covenants or ancient treaties because uh, uh, one of the things that's kind of exciting in the last hundred years are archaeological discoveries uh, that have unearthed a whole lot of, of ancient treaties or covenants, we call them, in the Hittite civilization. And what we've learned is that these uh, covenants have certain similarities, certain features in them. Uh, for example, all the covenants have a preamble with, that would identify the, the powerful king who's entering into a covenant relationship with his subjects. And then always at the beginning of a covenant statement, there was a historical review that would happen, which would talk about the benevolent things that this king had done for these people and things that he would do for them in the future. And then there would be stipulations. Uh, you know, this is a statement about expected behavior. How, are the, how is the king going to relate to his subjects and the subjects to the king and so? And uh, that would help them figure out what doing life together in the covenant was going to look like. And then there would be provisions for reading the covenant. You know, these things will be read to you periodically. So, so there would be a description usually about uh, the deposit of the covenant record. Where would it be kept? And how often would it be read? And then there would be curses and there would be blessings associated with the covenant. Uh, blessings if you obeyed the covenant, curses if you didn't, that type of thing. And then there was usually a section in, in these covenant treaties where vows would be made, especially the subjects would make a vow saying they would obey and be faithful to the covenant. And oftentimes the king would declare his willingness to be faithful to the covenant as well. Now, here's the significance of all that stuff because you're sitting out there going, oh, okay, here's the significance. In the passage in Exodus and scattered throughout the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Yep. Uh, I think I got them right. Let's see. You can correct me after if I didn't. 
in these, in these, uh, the, the Pentateuch, we actually find every one of these features that I just listed. Every one of them. So, therefore, we come to understand that these five books, they, they are actually a long-winded version of a covenant. A, a treaty that God is making with his people. Uh, all of the law that's given in the Old Testament, it really is given in the context of covenant relationship. For example, the preamble is right here in Exodus 20, verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God. He identifies who he is. He's the king who's giving himself to his people. And he does this, you'll notice, before he gives any commandments. Then there's a historical review. Uh, in the very next phrase, it says, the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. He's recounting what he's already done for the people and delivered you from slavery before you did anything to deserve it. That's the point, yeah. Now God rehearses what he has already done for them and then he gives them stipulations. Then he gives them Commandments And these, of course, tell them how they're supposed to relate to this, this God, this king that they're in covenant with. What does covenant keeping look like is the question that's answering. And it helps us to see uh, that the law comes. It's helpful for us to see and understand and remember that the law comes after God has redeemed his people out of Egypt. The law comes after God has entered into community with his people. The law was intended to describe what a covenant relationship is supposed to look like, not tell them how to have that covenant relationship. Does that make sense? Because you see, here's an underlining fact that you can never forget. That Old Testament covenant was a covenant of grace. It's a covenant that God initiated. Uh, by grace, God decided to love Israel. By grace, God decided to elect them, make them a special treasured possession. By grace, God decided to save them, save them up and bring them out of Egypt. God decided to come along and do life with them. All of that was by grace. Well, guess what? It's not any different today. The, the covenant, which we have, we'll be talking about that in a little bit here as we come to the table. The covenant that we have in the new covenant with God is a covenant of grace. There's never been any way to relate to a holy God other than by faith through grace, believing in, trusting in, holding on to his promises. That's how it's always worked. Never been any different. No other way. No other way. The Apostle Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul said, therefore, no one will be declared righteous or holy. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin and our need for God, this gracious God, to save us. Psalmist said the same thing. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And as it turns out, none do. None do. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's not one person gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai who has a right to walk up the mountain and go meet God. Unless that gracious God invites them, you see. Old Testament followers were very aware of the fact that, that they needed the grace of God, or they should have been. Uh, they knew grace was their only hope. That's what the whole sacrificial system was painting before their very eyes every single day. Sacrifices being offered for their sin, looking forward to a day when that wouldn't have to be done anymore. And that day, of course, was when Jesus came. Now, sometimes also people wonder 
When they think about Old Testament law, in the Old Testament, was it the sacrificial system itself, offering sacrifices, going to the temple, paying a tithe? Was it that system that connected people to God? Was it that system that created relationship with God? And there's a lot of ways to answer that. The short answer is no. No, that was not it at all. You see, when people uh, thought that they could just go through certain religious practices and thereby have a relationship with God, you know, language some Christians today might put to that as, you know, be saved or have eternal life or, you know, have a relationship with God or something. When they thought that it was just about keeping some rules, well, let me tell you, that not only grieved God, it made God angry because that wasn't what God was ever up to. God was always about creating community, always about uh, being connected with people by faith. And so uh, time and again, he would send the prophets to the people of Israel about this very issue. For example, through the prophet Isaiah, God said this. He said, the multitude of your sacrifices, all that religious observance that you're doing, that yeah, I told you to do, and yeah, you're doing it, but the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, uh, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Well, that's interesting. So religious practice and things you do that even God has prescribed, read your Bible, pray, come to church, tithe, all the things that you can find, all that stuff can be utterly and absolutely meaningless. It can be just religious ritual. It's capable of being exactly that. He says, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, all the special stuff you do. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. You see, you're doing wrong and then you come do this religious stuff and you think the religious stuff that you're doing that doesn't mean anything to you is gonna repair a relationship between us and God is making it very clear. Nope, not what it's about. What it's about is learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. Why? Because that's who God is. That's what God is like. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. You see, God was then and still is concerned primarily about the heart. He's never not been concerned about the heart. Offering sacrifices, outward religious compliance didn't mean a thing if those actions did not come from a heart of faith and repentance. Now, somebody might be thinking, well, okay, I've read the Old Testament. Seems to me there's a lot of picky little details in there about, you know, doing this and how do you carry the tabernacle and what kind of foods you can eat. I mean, lots of picky. Is God kind of obsessive compulsive or something? And uh, again, if you've ever read Exodus, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you know there are laws in there like do not murder and do not lie. But then too, there are a lot of laws about very specific situations. For example, Leviticus 11 says, of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. That word unclean is just kind of interesting. It just means that if you eat this animal or touch this animal, you will be unclean. You will not be able to participate in religious practices like making an offering. Uh, like offering prayer. You're unclean for a short time. 
And it was, this was another way of God saying certain things are sacred, certain things are not. Certain practices are okay, certain practices are not. And we don't always know why some of the practices were not okay, okay? So don't ask me why weasels were not okay. I don't know. Don't be a weasel. But anyway, of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon, of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. So if you were thinking about a lizard pasta dish for the Super Bowl this afternoon, bad idea, not good. Don't do it. You'll be unclean. You see, there, there, there are all kinds of regulations in the Old Testament. There are regulations about farming. For example, Deuteronomy 24. When you beat the olive trees to get the olives out of the trees, right? Do not go over the branches a second time. In other words, trying to get every little last olive. Leave the remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. People will read laws like this, and there are lots of them, over 613. They'll read laws like this and go, wow, okay, this is really specific stuff. The, there are laws about what to do if somebody's ox gores another person. What do you do to the ox? What do you do for the person who got gored? You might have to bury them if it, if it was really a bad goring. Uh, what do you do if a slave gets a tooth knocked out? There's a law about that, right? Uh, why so many details? Well, we need to understand for starters that all of these laws come against the backdrop of ancient cultures uh, that the Israelites were familiar with. Cultures that honestly honestly, could be very barbaric. Uh, for example, uh, in many of the cultures in, the, in Canaan, the land to which they were going, uh, the God that they worshiped was Moloch. Well, one of the ways, if you, if you want to have a good worship day with Moloch, you pick out one of your children and you sacrifice them to the God Moloch. And they believe that would really get God's attention, Moloch, and that would get Moloch obliged to do you a big favor. And that was part of the worship. That was part of the practice. Part of something else that was part of that culture. Slaves were routinely punished harshly, exceedingly harshly for the most insignificant uh, crime or infraction. Uh, that slaves could, could even be uh, killed. There was no accountability around this. Women were largely treated as property. Uh, re religions regularly featured components in the religious practice like temple prostitution. Male and female prostitutes at the temple. Uh, God was giving his laws in, against that kind of cultural background. So he was starting where people were with little regard for human life and where weaker members of society had very few, if any, rights whatsoever. And so the law had a kind of developmental aspect to it. God was developing, changing the way his people would act and the way they would think. God was wanting to set new parameters for his people. And many Old Testament laws uh, were given to correct sinful abuses. For example, Exodus 21. There we read, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, an eye for eye, and tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, and foot for foot, and burn for burn, and wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. In the ancient cultures, folks could get killed for almost anything depending on who they had wounded or who they had harmed or whose feelings they had hurt. If you had injured or hurt the feelings or the property or the person of a very powerful man, well, guess what? You were in trouble because that individual could do pretty much anything to you he wanted. He could enslave you. He could torture you. He could put you to death. He could have your whole family put to death. 
And so laws like this, today we call like the lex talionis, the Latin phrase meaning law of retaliation. It was meant to restrain that kind of injustice. It was meant to put limits on punishment, make punishment fit the crime. Uh, something else that Old Testament law did, it was, it was a para, paradigmatic. Paradigmatic. And what I mean by that is it gave paradigms or it gave examples of specific laws that the people were supposed to take and then apply those, those principles from that law much more broadly. For instance, we already read Deuteronomy 24 about beating the olives out of a tree. Well, that law right there, it didn't just apply to olive trees. It applied to wheat in your field. Don't harvest all your wheat. Leave some for others so that the foreigner, so that the stranger would have something when they would go in and try to glean your field after you were done gleaning. The whole idea was be generous. The whole idea was love your neighbor. Care about your neighbor. There were broad implications of these very specific laws is the point. And again, Old Testament law was never strictly, here's, the, here's what I want you to see. Old Testament law was never strictly about some narrow, legalistic, nitpicking, rule-keeping mentality. Never. It was about the heart. These laws were about loving God and in practical ways learning to love your neighbor. God gave some real broad statements of the law, things like the Ten Commandments, and then he gave some specific examples of how those, those paradigms like the Ten Commandments would be applied in real life uh, specific situations. And that way people could see how to obey. But it was always, always, always about the heart, you see. Now, another question, why, why do we obey some Old Testament laws and not others? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, why do we, for example, ignore dietary laws or cleanliness laws? Did God just kind of change his mind about lizards? He used to not like them, but now, you know, lizards are not so bad. I mean, why? Well, we've got to understand that there are, frankly, different categories of laws. People like John Calvin, you may have heard that name, a brilliant Bible scholar. Uh, through his study, he wrote a great deal, actually, about the fact that uh, you find at least three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. You've probably heard of this. There are civil laws having to do with the nation. There are ceremonial laws having to do with ritual and worship. And there are moral laws. Remember, God was in the process of turning a group of recently freed ragtag slaves into a nation. They needed civil laws. They needed laws that would help them form a government and decide property rights and sentence criminals and govern national festivals and, and laws also that made them different from the other nations because that's, that's some of what God was up to. And I think that's some of what's behind the lizard laws. They were just different. Are lizards evil? I don't think so. Can you eat one? Yeah, go ahead. But, but I don't think there's something moral about that. But God was setting his people apart and he was making them different. And we don't always know the whys and the wherefores of some of those laws. But civil laws, here's the point, civil laws were needed. They were absolutely needed to govern Israel. And those laws, because uh, we are not Israel today. If you're not, a, if you're not clear about that, I want you to contact Daniel and he'll help you get clear about that because we are not Israel. The United States of America is not Israel. Uh, please uh, understand that. We're a great nation, we're not God's theocracy, okay? 
So that's civil law. The second category of law is ceremonial laws. These are ritual laws. These are laws having to do with worship and worship festivals. These are laws that, that uh, govern practice. Things like the sacrificial system. What kind of animals can you sacrifice? When should you sacrifice them? Uh, what kind of foods can you bring as sacrifice? Uh, how pure do the foods have to be? And so on and so forth. It, laws about priestly garments. Laws about temple practices. Laws about cleanliness or uncleanness, laws about circumcision, laws about festivals. There are lots of these laws. And as many of you know, in the New Testament, when people started to follow Jesus after Jesus ascended into heaven, one of the big questions in the church was, what, what do we do? We got, we got some Gentile pagans believing in Jesus. What do we do with these people? I mean, do we need to get them circumcised? Do we need to get them obeying Jewish food laws? Do we need to get them, you know, offering sacrifices at the temple? What, what do we do with Gentiles? We had no idea Gentiles were ever going to want to start following Jesus. And the church had a big, big meeting. You can read all about it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. They all gathered in Jerusalem and they were led by the Holy Spirit to understand that now that Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. Go and make disciples of all nations since that was the case. And they, they were also helped to understand by the Holy Spirit that, that dietary law, the civil laws and ceremonial laws, those things all actually just pointed to Jesus coming. Sacrificial system pointed to Jesus coming. And so Jesus had come and, and he had fulfilled all of those laws. The whole system was designed to prepare the way for Jesus coming. So it would be unthinkable after Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension, it would be unthinkable to go back to that old system that was just pointing to Jesus. And so even things like food laws, those were really more or less object lessons on holiness and separation. I mean, uh, many of the food laws today don't make any sense to us. But one of the things they did is they set Israel apart from other nations. And that, we understand, was definitely something God wanted to do and was up to. But that leaves one more category of law, and that's the moral law. So we talked about civil, we talked about ceremonial law, and now moral law. Quite honestly, moral law is something different. <laughs> It doesn't go away. Moral law is all about God's concern for the human heart, right? Uh, moral law, an example of the moral law is the Ten Commandments that we read a moment ago. And the moral law is expressed throughout the Old Testament and the New quite consistently. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it's expressed this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's about the heart, you see. In Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Old Testament law, you see. Moral law. These were not laws to earn God's love. These were not laws that, that made you a part of God's family because these are laws you and I can't even keep very well. Um, but these laws do describe, did describe what covenant living looks like. And the great promise of the Old Testament was that, that one day something would happen where the law of God would get written on the human heart. And that, that day actually began, it, it happened when Jesus was here on earth. These laws being written on the, on the hearts of people who follow Jesus. God said to the prophet Jeremiah that a new covenant would be given someday. 
a new covenant, a better covenant. It's described that way. He said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Now understand, that day is now. It's right here, right now. You see, if you follow Jesus, the New Testament teaches that you also possess the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons Jesus ascended into heaven, he says, was so that he could send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be with every one of us, every minute, every second of every day, regardless of where we are. That's not true of Jesus, not in bodily form, right? And so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit writes the law of God upon the hearts of Jesus' followers. And the great hope of the Old Testament was that the day would come when people's hearts would be changed and and our hearts are being changed. They're not fully changed. I, I know that about you and you know that about me, but they're changing. Um. And we are part of following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, as having a heart that increasingly doesn't want to lie, doesn't want to lust, doesn't want to steal, doesn't want to worship false gods. Uh, Jesus made it very clear when he was here on earth. He said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's what he did. He fulfilled the law. You know, here's the thing. We can't fulfill the law. I mean, I I can't even get through a single day of fulfilling the law. And that's even if I I write the Ten Commandments down or I write them on the palm of my hand so I can keep them right there all the time. This is what God wants me to do and what he doesn't want me to do. This, This is the good outline here. I got it. I'll just keep it right here in front of me. And then Holly will ask me to do something I don't want to do. It's her fault, but it's still, I don't respond well. <laughs> I'm just guessing you, you have the same problem. So you see, I'm drawn to the law because I want that perfection. I want that holiness. I need that in my life. And yet also, the law confronts me with the reality that I can't even keep it myself. New covenant. So what does God do? In the Old Testament, God has all of these things, uh, ceremonial laws, so sacrificial system, all these things pointing to a day when he would make provision through Jesus, his son, and fulfill the law for us. That, That was Old Testament. New Testament, we've got Jesus himself who has already come and who left us a meal to remind us what he has done. And then he invites us, again, grace, covenant of grace, right? Old Testament covenant was a covenant of grace. New Testament covenant is a covenant of grace. He invites us to come to the meal in faith and in trust. And and when we do, what what does he do? He he forgives us the fact that we, we break the law. And he gives us his spirit, which writes that law on our hearts. And we more and more and more, hopefully, want to obey it. So the law is vitally important to us. We need the law to help us better understand the heart of God, better understand how to do covenant life with God. We need the law, but don't ever ever fool yourself into thinking you're keeping it because you're not keeping it very well. And when we realize that, we come to the table. That's what we're going to do in just a moment. Pray with me. Father God, 
It's just really a rich thing to see that for thousands of years, you have been creating a people uh, whose hearts would be changed, whose hearts would love your law, even though they can't keep it. And that you would even fix that problem, our great problem, the problem, Lord, of not being able to be holy. You sent your son uh, who would die for us, die in our place, take the punishment we deserve for not living holy lives. And, and then he invites us into relationship in spite of our unholiness. And so, God, we say thank you. We thank you for the law. We thank you that, that what it reveals about who you are and how you want us to live, the goodness of the law. And yet, Father, we also thank you for Jesus who fulfilled it for us. Thank you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.